Good morning. Thanks for your patience as we're getting going here. It's Pastor Lars Hammer here from Lord of Grace. Welcome back to episode 11 on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Religionless Spirituality. I had no idea how long this series was going to go, and I honestly still don't know when it will end. Every week I keep thinking I'll just go one or two more, but as I dig deep into it, my general take on this whole series has been to want to uh, go long form and get into things in depth, probably because the concepts, I think, are they're kind of abstract and they're deep, and I want to help explain them, and it's hard to do that quickly. So uh, this is number 11. Uh, I do hope to be back next week, even though it is Maundy Thursday. So we're going to pick up uh, again. This is a, another letter. We're going to pick up with a whole different letter. Uh, if you're in the book uh, on letters and papers from prison, this would be page 361 to 362. So I'm just going to move over and we'll get started right away on uh, reading through this. So, okay, here we go. 361, 362. I wonder whether any letters have been lost in the raids, uh, in the raids on Munich. Did you get the one with two poems? Uh, it was just sent off that evening, and it also contained a few introductory remarks on our theological theme. The poem about Christians and pagans contains an idea that you will recognize. Christians stand by God in his hour of grieving. That is what distinguishes Christians from pagans. Jesus asked in Gethsemane, you could not watch me this one hour? That is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Man is summoned to share in God's sufferings at the hands of a godless world. There we go. A lot to unpack there, right? Uh, so, it just starts out essentially with this idea that needs to be, that, that how should I say it? It's kind of becoming his cornerstone idea, his answer to the question of where is God in this secular world? Because as we've talked before, science, secularism are kind of pushing God out of everyday experience and people are living their lives in an everyday way without any reference to God or thinking about God. And so then that asks the obvious question, where is God left? And Bonhoeffer is going to take this and really dig into the idea of being forsaken, of being abandoned, and of God, ma God making us, God pushing us to live in a secular way. Well, what does that mean? So, we'll start out here. He talks about the raids on Munich where the poems lost. No, they weren't, and we'll look at them in a minute. Uh, it, the introductory remarks. So here he goes. He talks about uh, Christians and pagans. Uh, and he says, Christians stand by God in his hour of grieving, and this is what separates Christians and pagans. That's an interesting, interesting thought that that's what separates us. I think most of us would probably think that what separates Christians and pagans is monotheism versus polytheism, right? You know, my Viking ancestors had Odin and Thor and Frey and all sorts of other ones. And uh, then in came Christianity with one God. And we tend to think that's how it works. But what Bonhoeffer's getting at is that there's a deeper difference between Christian and paganism, that even if there was only one pagan God, they would function differently. And in the pagan world, of course, the gods, they don't grieve. 
They don't feel for you. They don't hurt with you. Those things don't happen. The pagan gods, they're usually distant and aloof. They are impervious to human suffering. They don't particularly care whether you're happy or not. They don't care whether your life is good or not. They just uh, care whether you worship them and do what they're told. And the truth is they don't even care that often whether you do what they're told. The basic gist of paganism is just they live their lives, you live yours. And if you bribe them with worship or you bribe them with prayers or you bribe them with sacrifices, they could be moved to change their, uh, they, they could be moved to change their behavior and give you blessings. They could give you rain, they could give you fertility, they could give you victory in battle. But that's the general thrust of paganism, that it's very transactional, that it's very much kind of us kind of, yeah, bribing the gods who don't really care about you. And so he says, Bonhoeffer talks about God in his hour of grieving, which implies that God is paying attention to us and God is paying attention to our world and not just paying attention, but is emotionally moved by our world, which is interesting because if you think of God as being omnipotent and omnipresent and all these all things, then it's hard to think of God being moved, right? I mean, if you are sitting up and you're in a different uh, plane of space-time and you can look down and you can see the beginning and you can see the end and you can see where everything's going to pan out. You know, it's hard to be moved because you see the whole picture, right? You know someone's going to suffer. You know that this one's going to die at this time. You can see it all ahead of time. Of course, that's not really how the Old Testament goes. In the Old Testament, God's very much, God is moved. God is persuaded. God can be moved to change his mind in the Old Testament. Abraham did, uh, haggled with God. And so a God that is moved to grieving is a God who uh, maybe isn't quite as omnipotent in that same way. And I've said before that I'm not convinced Bonhoeffer looks at God as existing in a separate space-time continuum or plane and doesn't think of God in those terms, but thinks of God as operating in our time stream in some sense. But that our God is affected, and that's a big thing. There's, you know, Thor could have cared less if you suffered. I mean, Thor didn't grieve for nobody. Your whole ship burns down, Thor doesn't care, you know. Um, and that was just the way it worked. Uh, so Bonhoeffer's coming at this whole, uh, this whole other different angle. Uh, and of course, you, you also got to think about this as looking at uh, death and suffering, right? Uh, and usually we get the arguments. Let me see here if I get this right. Yeah, and death and suffering. What does it say about God if God is grieving? That means that God is watching death and suffering. God is watching the pain and being affected by it. And usually at this point in the discussion then, the atheist would come in with a free will argument. I just saw Facebook meme somebody posted. It had this whole flow chart. If God is good, then, you know, God would make a world with free will. But could God have made a world with free will and no evil? Well, then why didn't he? Therefore, God is evil. And he had this whole flow chart out. There's all sorts of things assumed in there. But the whole flow chart only works if you're assuming God is sort of all-nipotent, all-powerful, and existing in a different space-time continuum. If God is 
a part of our world, not separated from it, not pushed out into the into another plane, but if God's a part of our world, then God is affected by our world. And if God is affected, that would mean God is affected by joy because, of course, we aren't, we don't grieve what we weren't attached to, right? Grief, impl grief implies that there's a connection that's been severed, a joy that's been taken away. And so, uh, so Bonhoeffer comes back, you know, and, and uh, arguing, arguing that, in a sense, God is a part of this world in a way. Uh, and the free will argument kind of falls apart on that. So Bonhoeffer comes at this with a different angle. Uh, ideas of, and just one more note before I go any farther, uh, ideas of omnipotence and all the all-powerful, oh, I keep forgetting what all those omniscient, all these kind of omni words, those are words from Greek philosophy. All those arguments about did God know what suffering was coming ahead of time it's all based on that Greek philosophy, which says that something that is perfect can't change, which isn't a biblical idea. But as Christianity grew and it got into the Greek world, they started asking these questions. And that was a Greek philosophical question that they've stewed over for centuries. And can something be, be perfect and change? And people like Plato came down with, no, definitely not. Uh, if it changes, it is not perfect. Doesn't necessarily mean it's evil, but it's not perfect, right? Because if it changes, well, then it maybe wasn't, uh, are you implying there was something wrong with it in the first place? And that's a philosophical idea. Again, it's not a biblical idea, but you can see the effects of that belief through our culture, where, you know, if, if you believe that your culture needs to be changed, are you implying that it was bad? And there are some people who will take that tact. Yes, the culture is absolutely bad, or this part of it is bad. That's why it must be changed. And the other side reacts and says, no, it wasn't bad. That's why it doesn't need to be changed, as if things can't be good and change. Uh, but that's a Greek idea. That's a Greek idea. That's not a biblical idea. Uh, and the aloof God sitting far away, that's a Greek idea. That's not a biblical idea. And so Bonhoeffer's kind of going against that, and he isn't saying as much in those words, but the idea of a God who grieves necessarily implies that you have a God who isn't off and aloof and in his own world, in his own place. Um, so uh, that brings us then, uh, let's see. Let's see where we are, I got my notes. Uh, oh, let's look at the poem. Let's go, let's go and look at the poem here for a second before we get any farther. It's, uh, it'll be on the next slide. It's called Christians and Pagans. And he wrote this poem in a three-part uh, section here. Uh, so uh, we'll kind of read through chunk by chunk. I'll give you, I'll play my hand as an attempt at being an English major. But so here we go. Men go to God when they are sore bestead. Pray to him for succor, for his peace, for bread, for mercy, for them sick, sinning, or dead. All men do so, Christian and unbelieving. So that's his first stanza. We'll pick this apart stanza by stanza. But so, interesting what he says. Uh, remember, this is a translation from German. It probably was worded very different, a little differently. Um, having to come up with the word bestead to find something that rhymes with bread. Uh, but the meaning is still there. You know, 
What's he saying? All of us turn to God when we're in need. That's the basic premise of the first, this whole first thing. People turn to God. All of us turn to God, Christians and unbelievers. Now, my first reaction to that was, are, how, are, you, are you sure? I mean, really? Uh, maybe, in Germ- maybe in 1940s Germany, where church had so saturated the culture that even the non-believers would go to church to, you know, to when they had lost a loved one or where the church had sort of gotten into the culture in such a way that in time of need, you know, you, you might still turn back to God or reconsider your position, some sort of, what do they say, there's no uh, atheists in foxholes, right? Maybe that's what he's thinking, but I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure that's what I see. I, mean, I see a lot of non-believers who go through, uh, you know, who, who, who suffer the sick, the sinning, and the dead, and who never grace the doors. You know, it's, only, it's pretty rare that you'll just see somebody straight off the street who will just show up because they're going through something. Not like it doesn't happen, but, you know, our building sits here and we're open every morning and, you know, you get one person every three years. That's not a whole lot. There's a lot more su- suffering in Marana than one person every three years. Uh, do I really think that even Richard Dawkins prays when he in sickness? No, uh, I think more. I think our culture has gotten secular to the point where, you know, people won't do that. You may get somebody who say they'll think about spirituality, right? They might say that this is a time for me to have a spiritual awakening, but you'll still hear a hesitation about anything quote organized. When I used to drive down to my previous call, it took me like a half-hour commute, and on Sunday mornings, one of the radio stations would play these AA testimonials. And so I would listen to these testimonials, people talking, and, you know, inevitably, they were deeply secular people, but one of the steps is surrendering to a higher power. And this was always a, a really difficult chunk for them because they were so scared that they were torn between, do, do, you know, and this one woman says she was talking to her sponsor and gets to this and says, does this mean I have to go to church? And like as if, you know, it said, does this mean I have to pick my fingers off with a saw? I mean, that, that was the way she talked about it. And her sponsor said, God is closer to you than you know. And she said, oh, that's great. And I, went, and I kept driving going, what in the world does that even mean? Huh? What? Uh, God is closer than you know? So you are God? God's there? I don't think she ever did. I don't think she ever formulated it. I don't think she asked about it. I just think she had a, uh, she said, oh, okay, aha, uh-huh, and then just moved on to the next step. Um, I'm just not convinced of uh, this part, but probably for where Bonhoeffer was in Germany, that probably was true. So, next stanza. Men go to God when he is sore bestead. Find him poor and scorned without shelter or bread, whelmed under weight of the wicked, the weak, the dead. Christians stand by God in his hour of grieving. So this is kind of what we were talking about before, you know. We come and we see the cross and we see Jesus suffering and we have to think about God grieving. 
God's grieving this, right? Jesus is suffering and God is grieving this. And what do we do? We stand with God while he is grieving. So when we see suffering, we stand by God who is grieving while God watches the suffering. And, and he says, Christians stand by God in God's grieving. Does that mean God needs us to be with him? And not necessarily needs, but that's what we do, right? And so, again, this isn't, a, this isn't the sort of aloof and omnipotent God. You're talking about a God who, you know, feels, is affected, is moved. Third stanza. God goes to every man when sore bestead, feeds body and spirit with his bread. For Christians, pagans alike, he hangs dead and both alike forgiving. You see how he sets this up, right? Everybody prays. Christians stand with him when he's dying. He dies for everybody. Right? This is his turn. Uh, you know, God is with us in all our struggles. God forgives all of us. And that is an important thing to remember. God dies for every, all of us. Not everybody wants him to. Not everybody cares. But God still dies for everyone. Uh, and you notice here, there's no magical solving of problems as you read this there's no uh you know god fixes things it's god sees the suffering and suffers with it uh, that's not a supernatural thing i little, little little story there was a there's a local church in town there was where i'm at there's just tons and tons of church plants in, that meet in elementary schools and it's probably a lot of factors for that, among them the insanely high price of real estate and the large number of church plants. My neighbor, it seems like, I mean, I think we counted, there's like 20 of them in a five-mile radius. I mean, they're just everywhere. And um, one of these church plants, I saw them coming, and I saw their van, and I thought, oh, I'll go check out their website. Um, and I looked at their website, and I got to their doctrinal statement, and I was quite amazed at how important it was for this pastor to let you know that the hand of humans has nothing to do with anything in our, our church. Uh, the Bible was written down super, it was supernaturally inspired, not just inspired, supernaturally inspired. And the authors were supernaturally moved to write what they did. And it was supernaturally uh, transmitted I, again, I'm trying to figure out what does this mean supernaturally. Does that mean that they, you know, you know, Isaiah fell into a trance and I can't help my hand, it's moving, you know? Is that, is that what you're saying? I mean, it's like it's so important for him to take away any human, possible human agency in it, right? Because to him, human agency implies error and he's all about absolutes and certainty. But then he goes on. It was supernaturally translated into the King James. And I was like, oh, the King James. That, and, you, and I wanted to, you know, just type and go, you know, 80% of the King James Bible is really the Wycliffe Bible, right? That King James burned Wycliffe, took his Bible, and tweaked all the sections about authority and monarchy, and then called it the King James Bible. Is that your idea of supernatural? But the idea is, again, even the translation. You know, there's not human subjectivity in the translation. It's supernatural, 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 
all the way. And, you know, you, you think about that and it's like, boy, you must have a really dark view of human nature and a really dark view of God being able to work through people. But, you know, if you're trying to create, again, an absolute truth, and you think like Plato, that truth can't change, if it's true, it can't change, right? It has to be true forever, then all this supernatural, supernatural is very important. But it also implies a God who magically intervenes almost against people's will. Right? I might be translating, I might, so the implication is I might will to translate a word a certain way, but the Holy Spirit then intervenes and what forces me to do it a different way. Right? So my, my, my evil will to put in some weird translation. Um, and, uh, you know, and I sit there with this God that, you know, looking at this doctrinal statement, you know, of this guy. He's sitting in a post-modern, you know, we're in a post-modern world where, you know, a lot of people don't even believe in truth, and this guy's asserting that, you know, the Holy Spirit grabs you by the hand and moves the pen for you. And I'm like, that, how, how can that do it? And the guy's growing like crazy, he has multiple services, drives a van around, and I'm like, man, certainty sells well, doesn't it? You know, there's a, there's a real comfort in having an idea of a God who supernaturally intervenes to save us from ourselves. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know if there's a lot of people at his church who are converts. I would doubt it. You know, I doubt there's a whole lot of real secular people who buy that King James was supernaturally written. But, you know, I, I think he probably has, he clearly has a very big following among people who share his worldview. Uh, and, um, you know, all I could think of is that they're just still trying to defend these Greek ideas of omnipotence and omnipresence and unchanging perfection from a guy who I doubt is having read Plato and doesn't even understand that how that's gotten into our culture. Uh, the idea that what is true cannot change and what is changed, you know, what is changed cannot be true kind of thing. And, uh, but this is not that. Right? In this poem, God, if God is suffering and grieving, then God is changing from a place of joy to a place of, to a place of pain. And if God, if God changes from you know, joy to pain, that's a change. If God is moved and affected by human beings, that means God can change within himself and change his moods and still be God. And you know, interesting what, what kind of that implies about how our, our worldview is. So here's the question maybe to ask yourself, and, you know, I ask it too. Um, you know, when we run into secularism, what difference does it make? This is kind of the question we always run into. What difference does it make? Uh, if God, if, if, you, if, you're like, uh, if you're like Bonhoeffer and you don't believe there's a metaphysical hell, and you don't necessarily believe in, you know, in, in an eternal punishment, and you don't believe in a God who's magically coming in and just sort of dropping blessings here or there, why bother? I mean, that seems to be the question that I run into. Uh, why bother? What's the point? Um, if God isn't going to intervene and give me stuff, why do it? I, there was an episode of Modern Family, 
And you remember Modern Family. I, I, I loved watching the show because having done theater, they staged that so well. I always felt like you could have done a Modern Family episode on stage and it would have worked really well with people coming in, the physical humor, it was, it was awesome. Very liberal bias, right? Super, super liberal show. And there's an episode on there where you have Gloria, this Colombian woman who married the grumpy patriarch of the family and there's this huge age difference and he is filthy rich but uh, extremely grumpy and she wants to get their baby baptized. They got this son and she wants to get him baptized but he's not sure about that. What's the point in this? I don't need this. And she says, well, but, but it will save him from hell. If all we have to do is get him baptized, it'll save him from hell. And he wasn't very persuaded about that. I'm not sure about that. And, uh, you know, we should get, you know, the, the church has a value, you know. What's the worst that happens? And he goes, well, you know, there is a financial cost to it too, and you have to spend time on it. Is it really worth it? And all I could think of is this is how Hollywood views religion. The grumpy guy is the voice of modern, liberal, secular world looking at religion. You spend time, you spend money, what do you get out of it? It's a capitalist, transactional kind of way of looking at religion. And to him, what it was, was you give your worship, you give your money, and in return you get your heaven. And so it was purely transactional, but he wasn't convinced as a grumpy businessman that it was, the transaction was worth it, that it was worth the cost. Uh, that the reward was that great. And um, so essentially Hollywood was saying, you know, religion is all stupid and worthless. Why bother? Right? Why bother? Very, and you know, and I'm looking at this going, well, they've reduced all of everything that the entire church teaches to get out of hell. You know, this is you reap what you sow, right? Churches have been so obsessed with teaching about a literal hell and so obsessed with teaching about getting out of the literal hell that baptism has been reduced to sprinkle the water and you have insurance from hell. And that's it. And nothing else matters. Not your faith life, not your spirituality. Nothing else matters but that. Well, why does Hollywood think that? Because a lot of churches, a lot of churches believe that. If you take out the metaphysical hell, what difference do, then what's the difference? Well, now it's a whole different thing, right? Um, so, uh, with Bonhoeffer, we're looking at the cross, and he's essentially saying, he's taking it in a different way, and he's saying with the cross, there is no benefit. There is no benefit. There's no transaction. It's just God suffering. There's no trade. There's it's just injustice and suffering and death. And after that, it's grief. And that's it. There's no, the, the, the cross is not about getting you something, which is, which is kind of a radical idea in a way, you know? And would you still, would you still follow Jesus if you knew that there was no, you know, dispensing of, of sort of gifts. If suffering and hurting together with others was the whole point of Christianity and that was all we did, would you be okay with that? Would you still follow? Um, would, you do, would you do it just so that you could grieve with others? You know? What, and, you know, I've had to think about that question, you know? 
What benefits do I get for myself when I grieve the loss of a loved one? Um, or I grieve with someone who lost a loved one. What benefits do I get out of it? Not really anything. I mean, if you think about it, it's a lot of time. It's a big time investment. It's a lot of listening. It's a lot of investing yourself in someone's pain. It's a lot of emotional pain and emotional load that you bear with somebody. It's time you could be doing something else. What do you get out of grieving with someone? What's the benefit? There's really not a benefit. You're just taking on a burden. You know, you're helping them relieve their burden, but you're taking on a burden. That's just love. There's no trade. There's no transaction. There, 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 there's no, I do it so that I get it. I could try to spin it. I could say, well, you know, a life lived uh, with one another in community is a fuller life. I agree with that. And grieving with others does build community. I mean, that's a, that, that is an effect of it. It does strengthen relationships. I agree with that. Uh, but is that really a benefit? You know? I don't think so. I mean, I think if, the, if you're running around grieving with people because you're hoping to get something out of it, ugh, I don't know what I'd think about that. But imagine if in modern family, imagine if you're in this modern family episode, right? And grumpy dad is saying, what's the point of church? It's not worth it. Why do you do it? And she said, it's very important for me to raise my family in the church so that we can embrace the sufferings of others in love. I don't, I think if I would have handed that script to the producers, they would have looked at me like I was, you know, Charlie Brown's teacher going, wah, 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 wah. They wouldn't have understood it, but you know what they probably would have said? This isn't Christianity. And would they have been right? It's a, they have a caricature, but their caricature is right a lot. I don't think Hollywood would have known what to do, you know? Because they also, you know, they go around town, they go around and they look at what they see. And what do they see? They see Christians treating God like a, you know, a sort of a giant favor dispenser in the sky. And they look at Christians as people who transact worship for favors. Because if we're honest, that's a lot of times what we do. And when we pitch our congregations and our churches, we don't say, come and embrace a life of suffering for the good of others. We say, look at what you'll get out of this and look at how much joy you'll get out of this. Look how much fun this will be. We're always busy pitching the benefits to individuals rather than pitching a life of embracing suffering and grief with a dying God. You know? I mean, look at Joel Osteen. I pick on Osteen. Yeah, I'll still keep picking on Osteen. You know, he built his whole empire. What's his theology? God wants you to be rich. That's it. No sacrifice, no suffering, no grieving, no loss, just positivity. I get my thumb on the screen. Positivity. There's no social injustice, there's no inequality, there's no oppression. There's no environmental damage we need to worry about. Uh, you know, there's no empires, no systems. It's just get a happy attitude, believe in yourself, pray harder, and you'll get stuff. You'll get a good return on your investment. Now, studies have shown that people who follow prosperity gospels do not make more money than people who don't follow prosperity gospels. There is no empirical evidence to back up the claim that 
you know, the right combination of prayer plus believing in yourself makes you richer. Uh, you know, atheists can believe in themselves and get rich. Um, and, uh, but, you know, you gotta think, you gotta think about that, right? Um, what if we went through our churches and named all the things that we do transactionally, you know, not out of just mutual sacrifice and suffering? There'd be a lot of conviction there, I think. You know, would we find a lot of that de facto paganism? Would we find a lot of the, uh, essentially, deep down, we're trading? Worship for something else. Giving for something else. You know, when when we look at how we recruit members, is it through mutual suffering? Or is there somehow transaction involved in it? I'll care for you if you give me donations. I mean, there's a fine line, right? Between caring for people and appreciating them being grateful and uh, being caring to get gratitude, to get favors. It can get fuzzy. It's good to be aware of it yourself uh, and to purge yourself of the urge because it feels good to have people grateful and it gets real tempting to want to leverage that. You know, I think of, I, I, I think of this story I'd heard. Where did I hear it? Where did I hear this story? There was this woman in New York City and she had gone to Mount Sinai Hospital for, I don't know, something, decades ago. And she was alone. She was older. She didn't have family around, but she had a ton of money. Hundreds of millions she had inherited. Uh, and so she decided she just wanted to stay in the hospital. She liked chatting with the nurses and, and having, it was like having service, like having waiters, and she liked seeing the people go through. And so the hospital said, well, if you're going to stay, I mean, we're going to charge you. And a day at the hospital, you know, it's expensive. I'm fine. I mean, she has hundreds of millions. So years go by, she's living in a hospital room. And they let her. They let her. Apparently, they had enough beds. They weren't worried. But she also had hundreds of millions of dollars. So the CEO of the company, uh, of the the company, the, the hospital, goes down and regularly makes personal visits. How are you doing? How you feeling okay? How's day been? How many patients at Mount Sinai Hospital do you think get personalized visits from the CEO? I would guess very few. And that's probably okay. He's got a lot of work to do. You know, there are other people who can do visits. Chaplains, doctors, etc., etc. Why is he visiting that person? Because she has money. And he's hoping he can butter her up, get lots of gratitude in return for his attention and care, And then when the time comes, he he was going to make the big ask. And apparently he did make the big ask and got a not as big return as he wanted. But the whole point was that, you know, care had been transformed into a transactional way to get money. You're caring to get money. And when you're doing that, yeah, is it really caring? If you're still trying to get a benefit out of yourself, is it really caring? Now, I know there are some people who will say, I don't care. I don't care. If I get the attention, if I get what I need, 
Why do I care if the, why do I care if the pastor is uh, just uh, pretending to care? Why do I care? Why do I care if the pastor drives a fleet of Bugattis or what does Osteen has? He has like six or seven sports cars, something like that. I don't care if he has that. I get what I want. You can have what you want. It's a very capitalist mindset. But if you do that, it's still transactional. It's still transactional. So what is Bonhoeffer getting at here? What is he poking us? A grieving God who just calls you to embrace suffering with him. There's no transaction there. Now, I'm going to step out on the ice for a second. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Get a little coffee before I get ready to do this. I'm going to step out on the ice here. Think about the resurrection. Good Friday, Easter is coming up. It's on our minds. Think about the resurrection. I was reading a philosopher, philosopher Christian named Peter Rollins. Very, very cool stuff does make you really think because he's a philosopher and he plays with paradoxes a lot. Uh, he's from Northern Ireland, so if you want to listen to his podcasts, it's very enjoyable. But he, has, he posed this question. He, he comes up with these hypothetical stories and poses a question. And one of the questions he posed was, he said, imagine there's a village somewhere and they had heard about Jesus uh, one of the disciples had seen Jesus die and then ran off to this village and told the village about Jesus and the whole village, right after Good Friday, said, Jesus is awesome. We, we, we want to follow this Jesus guy. And they did. But they never heard about the resurrection. They'd never lived it. They never saw it. And they'd lived in isolation for thousands of years. Now along comes someone missionary runs into him and says, hey, guys, you've been sitting here for 2,000 years, you know, with just the cross. Let me give you the good news. Jesus is raised. There's a resurrection. And in Rollins's story, the villagers tell him to go away because they're nervous. They're worried that if it was all about the resurrection, then it wouldn't be about the cross. Then, then because he argues that to some people, the resurrection has become a transaction. Yeah, Jesus died. He did it. It hurt. We know that. Mel Gibson showed us that. Um, but, the resurrection was and, but the resurrection was coming, and that's what mattered. It was a transaction. Death for life. Cross for eternal life. Punishment for or forgiveness of sins, transaction. The resurrection becomes the reward and the cross becomes the price. But if it's the price, then it's just a temporary thing and not a way of life. If you're doing it to get something in return, then are you really doing it? Now, I believe in the resurrection. I, I, I do believe it's a historical fact and I do believe it involved a physical body unlike, you know, the super materialists and John Shelby Spong and those types. However, I do share with Rollins the worry that the resurrection becomes the substitute for the cross and the following of Jesus in some people's minds or all of our minds sometimes. 
Jesus told his disciples to carry his cross, carry their cross to follow him. That was the command. And yes, he did promise a new life and assured that, but he assured them you won't get the new life until you die, which makes sense. Can't be reborn until you die, right? But did Jesus really mean that the grieving and suffering and giving and sacrificing and forgiving those who hate you and loving your enemies, was that just a necessary evil along the way to get the goodies you want? Is that just a, a, a cost to get a reward? Do we only pray for our enemies because we want to get a better palace in heaven or get there quicker? Do we only love because we want something back? I think Bonhoeffer is trying to get us to see the cross as a way of life. Not the toll booth on a sober highway to selfish rewards. Because as long as we're seeking a reward for our faith, we're still stuck in transactional thinking. We're still stuck with paganism, with doing something to get something. But in Bonhoeffer's God, there is no reward. There is just the grief. And in that sense, it, it makes us different than the pagans, but maybe not that different from those who are secular. So, can we go back one slide again to the first slide and we'll wrap it up? We go back to the middle of the paragraph. It says, Christians stand by God in his hour of grieving. That is what distinguishes Christians from pagans. Jesus asked in Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus is upset that the disciples aren't paying attention to him, caring for him. That is the reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Man is summoned to share in God's sufferings at the hands of a godless world. So there's no, it's not about supernaturalism. It's not about rewards. It's about embracing the suffering of a suffering God. And there we go. Bonhoeffer continues his thoughts. We'll continue next week. I didn't want to go any farther along with that this week. Uh, so we'll get into the next paragraph. Uh, as always, thanks for tuning in. And uh, leave any questions you have for me. Otherwise, uh, I will be back on Maundy Thursday. Make sure you uh, uh, go to church on Maundy Thursday. It is a holy day. God bless.